You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning. It's great to see you guys today. Like Dale said, my name's Elliot. I'm the Connection Pastor here. And today we're going to continue our series, Our Conditional Use Permit. But before um, we dive into the message, I want to give you a preview of what we can expect next Sunday. Because we've been going through this uh, set of messages building up to the dedication of the kids' building, which is going to be next Sunday, December 5th. And this is something that we are very, very excited about. We've Actually, we've spent years, it was years ago that we started praying about this, about what it would look like to kind of complete the campus and pull some different pieces together, and then we started having conversations. Many of you were involved in that process. We started praying. This time last year, we raised the funds to be able to do that, which was just a complete miracle, a real shock that we were able to do that in the middle of everything that was going on, and then next Sunday, we get to dedicate the building. So as part of that celebration, we encourage everybody to join us. It's going to be one of those Sundays you don't want to miss. The two services are going to be the same, the 9 o'clock and the 10.30, so you can come to whichever one. We'll start in here. Bevan's going to do the message, and then as part of his message, we're actually then going to go from in here to outside around the entrance of the kids' building. A few people are going to pray for God's blessing. Everybody from the patio can come and join us um, at that space as well. And then we're going to open the building, and you can tour it. You can walk through. You can see all the work that's been done, all the fun stuff and all the different classrooms, and just get a get an idea of what the kids are going to be experiencing for years to come. So that's next Sunday, December 5th. And then the following week, the 12th, is when the kids are actually going to start having their classes in there. So we want to have a Sunday where everybody can go through it, get an idea of what's going on in the building. And then the following week, the 12th, is when um, the kids will be in there. So again, we're really excited. We hope that everybody uh, joins us for that day. But in preparation, uh, we've been going through this series, Our Conditional Use Permit. And the reason that we're doing this series is because the city is not the only one with conditions on how we use the new building. God actually has some conditions of his own. And these conditions that he has for us um, that determine if he's going to bless and move forward in what we're doing, they're found in the book of Revelation. There's, um, there are seven letters written to seven different churches, first century churches spread out through what is now Turkey. And Jesus actually dictates these letters. He shows up to the Apostle John, and he dictates these letters to him, and John then goes and um, delivers these uh, letters to the churches. So we've been going through this. We started in Revelation chapter 1, and um, we're into chapter 2, and then we'll wrap up in chapter 3. But it's not surprising, as we've been going through this, that the conditions that God places, they don't have anything to do with the stuff that the city focuses on. They don't have to do with emergency exits or fire lane widths or the number of restroom stalls or how many electric vehicle parking spots that we have. None of that shows up when it comes to God's conditions. God's conditions focus on what is going on inside of our hearts. And the reason that he does this is because the impact that we are praying takes place as a result of that building and many lives and many families and there being a generational impact of trans- transformation taking place, the impact that we're praying for, it's not going to be the result of the construction process. It's going to be the result of us as individuals making a heart-level commitment to take God seriously and living according to his word. And that's where the blessing starts to flow out of. And so that's what we've been focusing on, and that's what we've been seeing in this series so far. So we started, we looked at the Jesus condition, We looked at how Jesus is to be the center of everything that we do. The next week, we looked at the love condition, how over time, love fades. That's the natural trajectory of love, and it takes work to keep love active and growing. And then last week, we looked at the 
the truth condition and this temptation that we have to try to figure out how do we get around what God says no to? How do we turn a no into a yes? How can we manipulate his word in some way to get what we want, but we need to be committed to what it says and be willing to obey it. And this morning, we're going to look at a letter to a church where Jesus addresses the purity condition, the purity condition. Now, purity is an interesting word. It's a word that we have strong ideas and opinions and feelings about, specifically when it's attached to certain things. There are certain things that you could attach the word purity to, and we're going we're gonna to change our behavior. We're going to change our lifestyle habits. We're going to change the way that we spend our money when purity is attached to certain things. But then you attach the word purity to other things, and suddenly we think, ah, it's just not that important. We don't really need to pay attention to what's going on in those areas. It's a really fascinating word. I mean, if you take you know, water, for instance, water is one of those things where we all value purity because we know that's important. I mean, I just, last week I went on Amazon, typed in water purifier, hundreds of products came up, stuff I had never even heard of or thought of. And there's, there's filters, there's little tablets you can put in water, there's droplets that you can put in water, page after page after page of products to purify our water. If you go to a grocery store, you'll see shelves that are full of brands of purified water. I was looking at this water before I came up, and they're right there on the front, purified drinking water. We know that this is important when it comes to our water because we know that there are invisible dangers in unpurified water that can make us sick and even kill us. Actually, the World Health Organization, they estimate that over three and a half million people, this is this is the current estimate that's going on in the world right now. Three and a half million people every year die from water-related diseases. We don't need somebody to convince us that purity in water matters. But there are other areas of life where we think that purity isn't important. You know, we'll change our purchasing habits to make sure what goes inside of our stomach is pure, but what about the ideas that we allow into our hearts and our minds? There seems to be a shift that takes place where when it comes to food and water and stuff like that, stuff physical, we, we pay a lot of attention to purity. But when it comes to issues of morals or spirituality or sexuality, when it comes to purity in those areas, suddenly we think, well, that's not as important of a topic. But the challenge is, is if we pay attention to what God says in the Bible, that's actually where God focuses his attention. And he doesn't just have a little bit to say on those topics he has a lot to say on those different topics, a lot to say about what is good and bad and right and wrong and safe and unsafe and destructive and stuff that brings benefit and blessing. He goes on and on in the pages of the Bible. But when we read through that stuff or hear it, our common response is, especially on the stuff, you know, stuff in the sexual arena, moral stuff, we read about that stuff and we think, well, you know, God's out of date. God's, God's standards, they're, they're just kind of lame. They're unnecessary. Haven't, as a culture, we've, we've kind of matured past what God has to say in the Bible on those issues, right? Suddenly we think that purity in those issues is unimportant. But the reason that God says so much about that, the reason he doesn't just leave us in the dark and say, okay, go figure it out on your own, is because God knows that the real threat that we face is not some microorganism in our drinking water. He knows that the real danger in life is the fact that sin is like poison to the human soul. And so you and I, we fear physical death, but what God knows 
What we really should fear is death that is of an eternal kind, eternal death. And because God knows what the real danger is, and God knows then what our real need is, God didn't just say, okay, you guys figure it out, come up with your own solution. God said, I'll provide a solution. I'll provide something to purify you of the sin. He did that through Jesus Christ coming. He, he offers us a way for a soul to be purified. And whenever a person decides to follow Jesus, what happens is, is that individual enters into a lifelong purifying process. That means that for us as individuals who are following Jesus and then coming together in churches to carry out his will, because purity is so important to him and because of the toxic effects of sin, what that means is that we need to be committed to addressing sin because we see it for what it is and we see the effects that it can bring. We need to be committed to addressing sin. So in the letter that we're looking at today, God actually confronts a church in the city of Theatira for their lack of commitment to address sin, which was causing the spread of impurity. This is what it says, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Jesus is talking, and he says this. He says, To the angel of the church of Theatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. In each one of the letters, there's imagery attached to who Jesus is, and the imagery tells us something important. The, the eyes that are like blazing fire, the, the image means that he sees everything. Absolutely nothing is hidden from him. He sees it all, and because of the fire, he has a purifying effect on our lives. He can purify. And then the feet that are like burnished bronze is pointing out that he's solid and unshakable, and he'll never let us down. So in the, in the intro, he's saying something very important about himself for us to pay attention to. And then he goes on, and in each of the letters in the churches that we're looking at and we're focusing on in this series, he gives a thumbs up, something that they're doing good, and then he gives a thumb down, a problem that they need to address. So he writes, he says this in verse 19. He says, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, that you are now doing more than you did at first. So he starts and he gives them a thumbs up. And this is actually, this is a really big thumbs up. I mean, if you pay attention to this, this is, this is really high praise. Because just a few weeks ago, we read about a church in the city of Ephesus who they're rebuked for forsaking their first love. Whereas this church that we're looking at today, he says, I know your deeds and your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. That is like, you read that, I just think about, okay, when I come to the end of my life and I stand before Jesus, and I think about what would be, what would be amazing to hear Jesus say? To hear him say, you know what, Elliot? You sacrificed what you wanted for the good of other people. You trusted me. You served me. You kept at it even when it was hard. You never plateaued. You kept pushing forward. To have him, have him give a thumbs up like he gives to this church, I don't know about you, but that would be amazing to hear him say something like that to me. This is a really impressive, notable thumbs up. And if you stopped reading here, you would think, we found the model church. The perfect church does exist, and we've just found it. But he starts with a thumbs up, and then he gives them... The thumbs down, he addresses the problem. He says this in verse 20, the very next verse. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You guys got a lot of good stuff going on, but I've got this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality in the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, there's a bunch of questions that we need to ask. The first question is, 
who is Jezebel? Who's the Jezebel that he's talking about here? Well, it's probably not the name of an individual in the church. It's a reference to a queen from Israel's history. And Queen Jezebel, she was married to King Ahab, and they ruled the nation around 875 to 850 B.C. And they, as a duo, were the most evil duo, duo that ever ruled in the nation. And Jezebel is actually pointed to as the one who was instrumental in turning the hearts of the people away from God. There's a summary verse about her impact in the book of 1 Kings, which is where most of her story is told. And in 1 Kings 22, verse 25, it says this, There was never anyone like Ahab, the king, her husband, who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. Never more anyone more evil than Ahab. But you know who was encouraging, motivating, clapping for, giving ideas to him? Jezebel. Jezebel was doing that. And apparently what Jesus is saying to this church in Theatira is he's saying that there is an individual or a group who is having a Jezebel-level impact in that church, and it needs to be addressed. So then this brings up another question. Well, how was it that Jezebel the queen, how was it that she steered the hearts of the people away from God? Well, two words, influence and ideas. She used influence and she introduced ideas. Influence. She's the queen. Of course she has influence. She's, she's viewed as an insider. She's one of them. The people would look at her, and she was their queen. She, they would say, she's one of us. She's the queen. And she didn't have the top position. That's reserved for the king. But even though she didn't have the highest, most authoritative position in the kingdom, she used what position she did have to bring influence, to work behind the scenes, to subtly do things, and over time, her influence spread, and she got people to do what she wanted them to do. She had influence. And then the second thing she did is she introduced ideas. These two always go together. Influence and ideas always go together. They're hand in hand. She has influence. She introduces ideas. If you read about her story, before she becomes queen, she's the daughter of the king of a nation called Sidon, a group that was a pagan group of people. They worshipped false gods. They wanted nothing to do with the God of the Bible. They hated the God of the Bible. They hated the way that he told people to live. So when she becomes king and Ahab marries her, she brings all of her ideas to the kingdom of Israel. Ideas about who to worship, who not to worship, how to treat people, what's important in life, what to live for, how to get the good life, pleasure, what you can do, what you can't do. She brings all these ideas. And it wasn't instant. It wasn't like she just showed up on the scene and suddenly she started to bring change. It was over time. She used her influence, she introduced ideas, and over time, she won the hearts of the people, and she led them away from God. She was given influence, she introduced ideas, and she turned the hearts of the people. We always see these go together. And it's the same way when it comes to our lives. Whoever we give, give influence to, the people that we allow to influence us, the things that we allow to influence us, they introduce ideas, ideas about what's important, what to live for, how to use your time, what's good, what's bad, how to spend your money, how to treat people. They introduce ideas. And over time, what we start to do is we start to act on these ideas, which is why you need to be really wise about what or who influences you. Because if you give influence to the wrong person, they're going to introduce ideas. And over time, they can lead you away. I actually started to experience this 
in college. When I was in college, I became friends with a group of guys who, on the surface, honestly, they were, they were, looked like good guys. A few of them went to church. Most of them, if you asked them, hey, do you believe in God? They would say, yeah, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. But if you, if you paid attention to what they were doing in their life, they really weren't interested in the things of God. They, they just kind of did what they wanted to do. They did what made sense to them. They did what felt good. They, they did what they saw other people doing. So I started hanging out with these guys and didn't really think anything of it, but over time, their influence in me started to spread. They introduced these ideas, and suddenly it was like, well, the things that I know are important, the things I know God wants me to do, I don't really have much of a desire to do those things. I mean, I know church is important. I need to be involved in church, but, you know, I, I don't know. It, is it really that important? Or what about, like, developing a relationship with God, reading the Bible, praying, spending time with Him? Well, I don't really have time with that because I, I want to do these other things. Or or treating people the way that God instructs, or viewing circumstances the way that God says that we're supposed to view them. Over time, my thinking on those things went from, okay, I've got a pretty good idea of what God wants, to just their influence spread, they introduced ideas, and I started to become more and more like them. And what was interesting is they never sat down with me and said, hey, Elliot, here's the book that summarizes all of our ideas on life. I don't think they could articulate it. I don't think they would have been able to sit down and say, hey, Here's the way that money's supposed to be spent. Here's the way that people are supposed to be treated. They were just doing the things that they saw other people do. But they had influence. They introduced ideas. And that started to pull me in a specific direction. I have seen this play out again and again and again in life. Whoever has the influence brings with them their ideas. And there's this reality that we live in a world where there are influencers out there who can lead you in the wrong direction direction, just like what was taking place in this church. So we need to be wise about who or what we give influence to. And it's interesting to me that it would be easy if it was obvious. You know, if you could just look at a person and be like, wow, they're going to be a bad influence. Look at another person, they're going to be a good influence. You know, that would be easy. But it's not obvious. On the surface, actually, sometimes it's confusing. And that's pointed out in this passage. It's interesting to me that when Jesus addresses this individual for the impact that she's having in this church, he compares the appearance with the reality in the situation. Here are some of the things that you see on the surface. She's part of the church. He says that. So as a part of the church, people looked at her and said, oh, she's one of us. She's called, she called herself a prophet. The idea is a prophet is somebody who helps people make sense of how God wants them to live and how he's working in the world. So she must have known a thing or two about God. Then we're told that her teachings were leading people away. She's misleading people by her teachings. If people are going to listen to her teachings, it had to be appealing. It had to be interesting. I mean, nobody's going to listen to just some boring teacher that's not telling us what we want to hear. So you, you add it up, and just based on appearance, there were probably people that looked at it and said, hey, what's the big deal? She's one of us. She knows a thing or two about God. She's saying things that I'm, I'm really interested in, saying things that I want to know more about. So she was having this impact. That was the appearance. But then Jesus kind of, he pulls back the curtain. He kind of pulls off the mask and he says, hey, this is the reality of what's going on. The reality is he compares her to an evil queen, the evilest queen from Israel's history, Jezebel. He says that she's turning people away from God and into sin. Not just like every once in a while, but she's bringing them into lifestyles that are in opposition to the way that God wants us to live. And then later on, in verse 24, we're not going to read all the way that, to that point in the passage. You can read it later. But in verse 24, 
he points to the source of her ideas. He says they are Satan's so-called deep secrets. This is not the kind of person you want to give influence to. But it's not always that obvious. Because on the surface, if you just look at the appearance, it's like it seems benign. It seems like uh, this isn't that big of a deal. She looks like such a good person. I like this stuff. She's one of us. But over time, she's spreading her ideas, and she is leading people in the opposite direction. Again, we have to be wise about who or what we give influence to. There's a reality that if you, if you just pay attention to the surface level, if you give influence to the wrong person, you can unknowingly be led away. One of the most interesting words to me in the passage is the word tolerate. It's, we're told that they are tolerating this woman Jezebel. And they're tolerating her. They're tolerating something that is causing the spread of sin in the church, causing the increase of impurity in the church. Now, why, why, are, they intoler- why are they tolerating this? Well, I think there's probably a few different reasons, but it's, it's interesting to me because, you know, we have a cultural conversation about the word tolerance, what we should tolerate and not tolerate. And nobody wants to be called intolerant. And so it's interesting to me. And so I, I think probably, you know, yeah, there were some in the church who were, who were naive or intentionally dense and just kind of went along with it because they liked what they had to, she had to say. But then I think there was probably another group that they could see through it. They knew what was going on. They knew that this was leading in the wrong direction, but they were tolerating it because what happens if you address it? You're called intolerant. So it's actually a fear that we face too. It's a fear of, well, I I don't want the label. I don't want to be called the name. I don't want what goes along with that. And so, you know what, maybe maybe if we just just ride this out, if we just tolerate, if we ignore it, you know, maybe it will solve the problem. But it doesn't. If you're going to take God seriously, if you're going to do the things that he instructs us to do in the Bible, there's going to be a point where either in our lives or lovingly we're going to have to help other people, sin is going to have to be addressed. And when you do that, guess what? The label will come. You're going to be labeled, we're going to be labeled intolerant. And there's a temptation at this point, a temptation that every church and every culture and every generation has faced And the temptation is to run in one of two directions, to run to the side of love, oh, well, let's just love them, or to run to the side of truth. It's almost like there's this teeter-totter that's set up, and you got love on one side, and you got truth on the other side. And okay, well, you know, if we just go all in on love, and we don't talk about the things of God, well, then maybe we'll be accepted. Or people run in the other direction, and they say, well, let's just go all in on the side of truth, and let's kind of Let's build up calluses to love. Let's not feel anything. So that way, if we're called names or rejected, well, we don't care because we don't love. So we don't feel anything. There's this kind of this teeter-totter that's in effect, and people are tempted to run in one direction or the other. And if we decide to run to the side of love, then what we do is we, we overlook the things that God says are sin. This is what this church in Thyatira was doing. They are tolerating sin. And the idea is, okay, well, you know what? If we just don't talk about it, if we don't talk about the stuff that God says no to, well, then then maybe we'll be accepted. Then maybe they'll want to listen more because, you know, because we're just so loving and so friendly and so kind and so nice and everybody just likes us because of who we are. And then we tolerate sin. What happens over time to individuals and to churches is 
over time, we start to lose our grip on truth. And in the name of love, we stop addressing sin. And so the impurity starts to spread. And then when the world, who everybody's looking for a solution to the purity problem, it's, it's not some secret that there's something wrong. And people are looking for a solution. So when people start to say, okay, there's, there's this problem, what's the solution? They look to the church, and then when a church or individuals just run to the side and don't have anything to say about the stuff that God says no to, you know what? They, they actually look no different than the world. So they have nothing to offer the world. Because when the world looks, the world sees they're the same as me. They've got nothing to offer me. They're just nice. Well, guess what? Canada's nice. The whole country's nice. Nice doesn't change lives. Or we run to the other direction. We go to the other extreme. We neglect love, and instead we just focus on the truth. It's the old, I don't know if you've heard about this, the Bible on the end of a baseball bat. I, I, I remember I used to hear people saying that. Like, That's terrible. That sounds terrible. But we do that. We run in this other direction, and it's just, okay, no love, all truth, and then we're mean. We beat people up. We're, you know, we're, and, and we justify being mean. You know why? Because we know what's true. So we can be mean because, well, we're right. This is true. And because this is true, well, I mean, I don't need to feel anything. I don't, I'm telling them the truth, right? That's all I've got to do. Well, guess what? Guess what people do who go and looking for a purity solution do in response to that? Do you want to get help from a bunch of jerks? No. What does the world do? They stay away. They don't want anything to do with those individuals. They won't even listen to them. Why? Because they're mean. So there's this, there's this temptation. It's, okay, we either go all in on love and we don't talk about the things of God, or we go all in on truth, and we stand on the truth and we fight for the truth, and, you know, if they just got to get with it. And then we're mean. What's interesting is there's a church, the church of Ephesus. This is the way that they're trending. They're trending in the direction of truth. And when, um, when Paul writes them, there's actually two letters written to them. There's this letter in Revelation, and then there's the book of Ephesians that's written to them. When Paul writes them, because they've gone all in on the side of truth, it's interesting what Paul says. He says this in Ephesians 4.25. He says that they are to speak the truth in love. He's saying, hey, it's not one or the other. Same thing with the, with the church in um, Thyatira, they, they go all in on love. They neglect the truth. And then in Jesus' letter to this church, what he says to them is he calls them out for it, and he says, actually, not only are you not going to have anything to offer the world, but I'm actually going to bring consequences because this individual who's introduced the spread of this impurity in the church and then those who are choosing to participate in it, he, he goes through this really detailed list of the consequences that he's going to bring. And then he wraps it up, and he he says this to him. He says, Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. This is Revelation 2.23. This is a chilling warning not to run to one side or the other. In this warning that Jesus has given, the reason he says, Then all the churches will know, he's saying, Hey, if you throw all your eggs in this basket, what's going to happen is you're going to become an example of what not to do. That's a pretty chilling warning. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the example of what not to do. It's not one or the other. It's both. As people who take God seriously and follow him and as a church, we have to keep a firm grip on both the truth and a firm grip on love. It's not something that we can teeter-totter on. It's both. 
And actually, what's really, really interesting is when individuals do this, and when a church does this, instead of having nothing to offer, and instead of people staying away, what happens is, is it actually gives the world hope. It gives the world hope because, like I said, everybody knows there's this problem. And we're either trying to numb it through chemicals or entertainment or some kind of an experience, or we are trying to fill the hole with you know, all different things. Oh, well, maybe, maybe my diet really can solve my soul problem. Maybe exercise can solve my soul problem. We're trying to fill it with all different, maybe money will solve my soul problem. We're trying to find all different kinds of things to solve this problem that we all know that we have. But when a church chooses to love, they take a posture that is open and engaging instead of closed. They inconvenience themselves for other people. They're not self-righteous and condemning, but then they're honest about this is what God says. And we're not just going to be the ones that say, hey, hey, all of you out there, you're supposed to do it. We actually care about it in our own lives. So we're going to address sin in our own lives first. When a church does that, when somebody's hungry and looking for a solution to the purity problem on the inside, it gives them hope because they know, okay, I can go there and I'm not going to be condemned. I'm going to be loved. But they're also not going to lie to me. They're not going to say, you know what, it's okay. It's not that big a deal. It's not deadly. They're going to be honest with me about what the problem is. So it's actually surprising that when we, when we commit to address sin, when we, when we are wise about who or what influences us, and then when we hold on tightly to both love and truth, what happens is, is we extend hope to the world that needs it. It's a very surprising outcome. And so this, this letter to this church that Jesus writes, it's a warning for us. It's a warning for all Christians. It's a warning for the church at large that we are given a great privilege of telling people about the only thing that can purify a soul. And when we choose to both love and hold on to the truth, what we're doing is we are giving the world hope. But if we fail to do this, if we fail to address sin, if we don't pay attention to who or what is influencing us and shaping our ideas, then what's going to happen is the warning that Jesus gives. Eventually, what he'll do, not over time, not in an instant, he'll remove his blessing, and we will end up being an example of what not to do. Our prayer is that that never happens here at Seabreeze. So we've got to commit to address sin. We pay close attention to who and what influences us, and we hold on tightly to love and to truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for not being silent on these things. I thank you for not allowing us to just blindly walk into traps or blindly choose a course where we end up wasting the opportunity that we've given. But you've spoken clearly and you've given us direction on what we need to do. So Father, I pray that as we gather next Sunday and prepare to dedicate that building, God, I pray that that really isn't the end of anything. It's just more responsibility we've been given that we need to take seriously. And I pray that we would take that seriously. And we would be a church that is known for our love, but also known for the fact that we hold on to the truth. So we really have something to offer people that are looking for a solution. I pray for that.
In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.